When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. I'm Ben. As always, we are joined by our super producer, Alex the Madman Williams. Uh, now, Scott, I'm just going to arbitrarily assign nicknames, and we'll, we'll see if they even out. The Madman. Madman. Okay. Madman's a, a great nickname if it's in between someone's real first and last name. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, if it uh, if it sticks for the whole episode, I guess it'll be fine. But we'll we'll see um, if there's something a little better by the end of the episode. Right. Because sometimes when you're at the beginning of an endeavor, you're not quite sure about just what you're getting into. Yeah. And uh, well, we know what we're getting into. The two of us do. But, mm-hmm. uh, but everybody out there might only know about one of the topics that we're going to talk about today because that's what the title will be, right? Right. We're going to talk about um, you know, how expensive is it really to maintain an exotic car, mm-hmm. a McLaren in specific. Specifically. A, well, specifically a McLaren F1. Yes. Uh, but the second thing that we're going to talk about towards the end of this episode is, uh, is a lengthy listener email that was uh, written to us and we are – Going to respond to the response, I guess. Yeah, because we think that it will be valuable to, uh, it will be valuable to you all, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to, you know, we strive for fairness in our opinions. Even me with Honda Odysseys, you know, we always get it 100% of the time, but we thought it was a very informative look behind the curtain. Should we spoil it yet or wait? Now let's wait. Let's wait. Mm-hmm. So everybody scoot to the edge of your seat. Unless you're driving, keep, keep your, <laughs> yeah, maintain your position, <laughs> maintain your position, yes. 10 and two, everybody. Please do. Please uh, do. So Scott, um, you brought this idea to us originally and I was, I was gassed, uh, about it. No pun intended because uh, we earlier did an episode on the hidden cost of ownership. Because we've, we've all been there, you know, when you're fantasy window shopping, right? Or I guess now increasingly shopping online, you're looking at ads for cars and you think, wow, this Viper is only blah, blah, blah amount, you know, mm-hmm. or like, oh my gosh, a Rolls Royce. I could own a Rolls Royce. But unfortunately, just like when you buy a plane ticket, just like when you buy a concert ticket, uh, to an even more egregious degree, the cost of keeping a car drivable 
is incredibly significant. It's often more than people bargain for. And in some cases, unfortunately, the cost of keeping a car running for one to five years can be more than the initial cost of purchasing the actual vehicle. Absolutely. And we've touched on that so many times with a couple of the examples that you mentioned, the Rolls-Royce, you know, mm. the mid-80s Rolls-Royce yeah, yeah. that uh, that looks so affordable on the lot. <laughs> but then you realize, you know, the Rolls-Royce maintenance is going to really get you. Yeah. And then, <laughs> you know, and then we did the same thing with the Viper recently. That's our most recent one, mm-hmm. really, is that, you know, first-gen Vipers, uh, relatively affordable considering what you're getting, considering what they were, right. what they cost. Um, and now that the whole, you know, brand, the whole mark is gone, that's going to mm. be something else that might even drive value up uh, in the future. But anyways, the first gens, you find out that that one piece carbon fiber hood is, you know, what, $18,000, $22,000, something like that. Uh, just a ridiculous amount of money if you get into a small, you know, a minor fender bender with right. the front end. Uh, and what was the other one we used? We used to use the Ferrari, I think it was. The yeah, Ferrari the 308. And yeah. then someone wrote in finally and said, hey, Check the values of these things because they've gone up by three times. Uh, right. So instead of being a twenty-five thousand dollar, you know, exotic, you know, Ferrari three, I think it was a three hundred eight. It, it turns out that they're seventy-five thousand dollars plus the maintenance is still expensive. So uh, that's one we couldn't use anymore. But right. so I like our new version, the Viper. I think the Viper is a good one. That's a good one. But um, <laughs> this is this is really uh, this is shocking. So we we talk about maintenance and we mm. we often say. You know, you can spend all of your money on a car. If you had a million dollars, what car would you buy? And it probably would be a regular run-of-the-mill car. It wouldn't be something exotic because exotic car maintenance gets ridiculously expensive if, unless you have an unlimited amount of money, really. I mean, and maybe that's overstating it. I don't know. Uh, mo money, mo problems. Uh, yeah, but that's probably right. I mean, but just how much, we, we had no idea until I listened to this interview that was conducted by um, a website, a relatively new, I don't know if it's a website, I guess a website and a YouTube channel yeah. called VinWiki. Mm-hmm. And VinWiki um, is a like a social vehicle history reporting platform, as they describe it, where people come on, to, you know, on uh, set, I guess, and they describe kind of interesting stories about the cars that they drive, the cars that they love, uh, maybe cars that they've sold, things like that. You know, it's interesting stories, and they always provide you with the VIN number of the car they're talking about, which I think is a neat little touch. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just there, there were some fascinating tales there already. And one of them that really caught my attention uh, was this this one about uh, maintenance, about McLaren F1 maintenance. Mm-hmm. And the, the person that was interviewed, and this is I find this even more interesting, is the guy, the guy's name is uh, Bruce Wiener. And if you remember Bruce, he's the guy that owned and operated that microcar museum or the uh, – I think it's called the Microcar Museum of Madison, Georgia or something yeah, like that. Yeah, 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 down in Madison. Yeah, the, the guy that sold all of them. I went there that final weekend, took mm-hmm. a bunch of photos and they had an auction and uh, he made a pile of money on that. But the guy apparently has had far more than just mini microcars over the years because he w- was talking in this interview on VinWiki about what the what it's really like or the, the crazy expensive cost to maintain a McLaren F1. And I thought, well, I, this won't be, you know, too shocking, really. It can't right. be. I mean, we we know what to expect. I mean, we've we've heard of the, you know, the oil sheiks that send their car over to London for a, you know, twenty thousand dollar oil change. Mm-hmm. That, that's not surprising. And to be fair, that is counting uh, transportation costs. Well, sure, okay. So, you know, we've heard stories like that, and you hear yeah. stories of, uh, well, I'm going to put, you know, new wheels on this thing, and it's going to cost me five thousand dollars, right, or, or ten thousand dollars, or something like that. Mm-hmm. I thought those were, you know, kind of uh, par for the course, I guess, for, mm-hmm. for, you know, exotic car maintenance. But when I listened to this interview from Bruce or by Bruce mm-hmm. uh, about the McLaren F1, I, I was just 
floored. I couldn't believe the prices that I was hearing and the complexity of the the maintenance and repairs to this vehicle. Even just buying it was a uh, was a year long negotiation. Uh, we should say that uh, Bruce Weiner is a car aficionado. He is not by any means new to the game. Uh, he has owned over a thousand cars in his lifetime. Right, thousand cars. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I, I don't have much more to say about that than wow. Holy <laughs> cow! I mean, I know a lot of them are the the mini and micro cars, but in this interview, he'll talk about owning you know Ferraris, Lamborghinis, mm-hmm, that type mm-hmm. of thing. So he owns other exotics as well. So he already has a good idea of what to expect or so he thought. Yeah. Yeah. So in this interview that we're, we're going to, we have a transcription of the interview. Uh, you can watch it online if you like, I'll tell you, you know, where you can go to find this and you can kind of follow along if you want, or just mm-hmm. watch it after this podcast, maybe, but we're going to, you know, read along through this, this transcript that we have in front of us. And some of these, some of these numbers just absolutely unbelievable. And if you want to hear it in his own words, sure. feel free, go to, uh, you know, vinwiki.com. And you can watch that either, you know, you can search that on YouTube and find it as well. But the the interview itself is called How Crazy Expensive Is It to Maintain a McLaren F1? And that's the exact one that you'll uh, you'll find Bruce talking about this madness. And you guys already know, uh, longtime listeners, that I'm a fairly thrifty person. So I'm going to be honest, there were times where I had to stop the video and go take a take a walk, <laughs> get a glass of OJ or just, something. Just cool off, right? Just, yeah. 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 Gotta, I got to cool off a little bit. So, uh, so let's, let's dive in specifically. This was a 1994 McLaren F1. Yeah. Now that's a car we've talked about, right? It is. Yeah. It's a special car. Of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, you got to remember the time that we're talking, time frame we're talking about for this vehicle too. So it's an, it was produced between 1992 and 1998. And, uh, now I think Bruce says in the interview here that there were 63 roadworthy cars mm-hmm. that are, that are known to exist. And maybe that's the, the key here, known to exist. Um, the production numbers I think are quoted somewhere north of a hundred vehicles. They made about 105, 106. Yeah, somewhere not much there. more than a hundred though. No, they were made in England, of course, at the McLaren factory. But, um, you got to remember that this is before McLaren started making, you know, the MP4 series of cars and the, uh, you know, the P1s and all mm-hmm, those. Mm-hmm. This is like their first real foray into making a road car. Prior to this, they were strictly a racing uh, outfit. Right. Like, just right. making racing cars. And that's about it. So to, for them to make a road car was something really interesting, unique. And they used... Uh, you know, a special built body, you know, they had a, it's like a, um, you know, the chassis and the body were, mm-hmm. was their own, but they did buy an off the shelf engine from BMW. They had the 6.1 liter BMW V12 engine in them. And a lot of people believe that to be, you know, a strong choice for that vehicle. And it was a, you know, a powerful car. In fact, it's the most, I think this still holds true, Ben. I think it's still the most, uh, the, the fastest normally aspirated automobile still in the world. I, I believe that's the mm-hmm. way that they say it. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Bugatti kind of, uh, well, Bugatti blew its doors off later, but that was with four turbochargers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the reason. I think McLaren held the record back in the late 1990s. For naturally aspirated, yeah. Yeah, and it was like 240 miles per hour, something like that. Now, when uh, the Bugatti came along, it upped it to like 253 miles per hour. But again, that's four turbochargers, you know, their own test track, that type of thing. So yeah. McLaren is pretty darn close with this normally aspirated aspirated car. And I mean, we've, we've talked about it at length in other shows, you know, um, I, I know we have uh, a sure. long, long time ago, probably you'd have to dig through the archives to find it, but it's a, it's a really fantastic vehicle all around. Oh yeah. The problems are not related in any way to the actual function of the vehicle. No, you know, it's just, uh, it's keeping the old girl 
running. It, it's a hassle. It <laughs> yeah. really is a hassle. I mean, you wouldn't think so. I mean, well, I guess maybe you would. Maybe you'd think it'd be temperamental, but maybe not. <laughs> boy, I don't even know how to describe this, Ben. It's not that the car is temperamental. It's almost like, oh, boy. I kind of back myself into a corner. Maybe we should just get into this and, and talk about it because you'll yeah. you'll find out quickly what the real problem is here. Yeah, and I'll uh, I'll set us up with a brief um, thesis statement, a little bit of a fortune cookie for us. Uh, the problems often seem to trace to the fact that this is uh, maintenance uh, that is uh, of a hybrid nature. This is the street legal maintenance that we're all used to. And then some heavy racetrack maintenance influences. Yeah, sure. And yeah. we'll describe that too. We I mean, will. He's, he does a great job. Bruce does a great job of describing, you know, what this car is all about. I mean, yeah. really, the, 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 the nature of it. Yeah. Cause he's thought about this at length. <laughs> yeah, all right. He so, sure is, <laughs> so our, our story begins when, um, he, he decided that he was going to buy one of these, as Scott said, 63 roadworthy McLaren F1s, specifically in 1994. Yeah, and now you don't just go to a dealership and buy one of these either. No. This started with a negotiation with a lawyer of the owner of the vehicle, and his offering was $1.2 million for the car. He wanted to pay $1.2 million. And they wanted $1.3 million. So they go back and forth for a little less than two days and they just can't come to terms. 1.3 uh, is non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. So they say a year passes, an entire year. And uh, ex almost exactly a year later, uh, Bruce receives a call from the lawyer who says – Hey, uh, you remember me? Do you, you still want that car? <laughs> you still got that 1.2 laying around? Yeah, you still got And, uh, he says, yes, he does. And he says, you know, I'll take it. And he says, okay, well, it's yours for 1.2 million, just as we discussed. And as you wanted to pay. And the guy said, well, all right, that's fine. So they wire the money. And of course, he sent over a, um, a, a transport, you know, flatbed to get it. Yeah. And the thing is, he said, Bruce says he didn't know much, much about the car, really, other than he did know kind of, um, you know, what the guy had, had told him about it, you know, just, just what he had told him up front about the vehicle. Right. And he spoke to another person about a month before the purchase about it. So you can tell he was still interested in it. He was still keeping tabs over, uh, that intervening year. Yeah. Uh, because he spoke to someone who had inspected the car, uh, just about a month before he sealed the deal. Mm -hmm. And he knew that just in the factory, it had some quality work already already done. Yeah, well, at the factory, well, that'll come into play in just a little bit. You know right. why why it was at the factory, uh, but he knew the car was in really good mechanical condition, right? And he said the car was actually born a silver car, and the previous owner had repainted it orange, which Bruce thought was all right. You know, he liked the, <laughs> liked orange, no problem. And it's a it's a pretty interesting color, orange. If you watch the video, you'll see the exact car. A photo of it will appear. Um, but it was sent back to the factory and was painted with this gel coat, I guess. And, and in order to paint it in this gel coat, uh, they had to do this unbelievable stripping down of the fiberglass, you know, right. uh, this, this procedure. And he says he's got pictures of the process, but it took it took six months, I think, to paint the car. And it, it cost him, I think it was 250,000 pounds to repaint the car. Right. So what is 250,000 British pounds in U.S. dollars, you may be asking? We also asked, and it's $324,000. 324 for a paint job. So A little bit more. Uh, oh, a little more than $324,000 for a paint job. Now, 
just imagine that to begin with. I mean, that's just wanting your car a different color. That's just the paint. Yeah, just the paint. It's Nothing like six else. Six months. Really. Six months, and you had to have yeah, you send it to the factory, and that's where they do this process. Now, I mean, that's a great place to do it, but come on, three hundred twenty-four thousand or north of three hundred twenty-four—that's yeah. a lot of money. All right, so <laughs> here's where we start to get into the McLaren program that, that Bruce is talking about. So he says they have a program with McLaren where if you own a McLaren. Um, you know, back then it was factory direct to the customer. You couldn't go to a dealership. There's right. no, no middlemen. You couldn't go to like Alex the Madman Williams local <laughs> it still McLaren works. dealership. It still works. I uh, like yeah, it. I'm testing it's, it out. It's working. It's working. So yeah, he couldn't, he, yeah, you couldn't go to the dealership and drive it like you said. You couldn't go walk around and look at it. I right. mean, there were no middlemen. It came factory direct, right? Mm-hmm. So there really wasn't anywhere that you can also take the car to get serviced. And that's a problem. I, it turns out there is an East Coast and a West Coast service area in the United States. Yeah. And the other option is to send it back to London or send it over to the UK. And that's where they do this. But a little crazy, a little crazy to, to think about doing something like that. But I guess apparently it happens a lot. But here's the thing. Um, you know, there weren't dealers to take it for service, et cetera. But they did have something that a, a way that they could direct uh, directly deal with you via satellite. So mm-hmm. they have a hookup in the cars where you hook up your laptop with a modem that comes with the car. And then they have a direct link to your car, and they can troubleshoot it right there from the factory wherever you are. So as Bruce said, he was in his garage in Atlanta, Georgia, and, you know, they're mechanically going through his car uh, from over in London, you know, at the factory. Kind of a cool thing. It's a neat feature, I think. And I've heard of other, you know, other companies that are able to do similar things, but mm-hmm. think about the time frame of this. This was back in 19, uh, what did I say, 1998, 1992, I think it was, right? Yeah, 1992 to 1998, and they've implemented mm-hmm. something like that in their cars. Right, That's right. incredible. And so there's another really cool thing that impressed me that I did not know until we learned about it in this interview, and that's if you buy a McLaren used, previously owned McLaren, McLaren will give you the first service and inspection free. But wait, guys, you oh. might be saying in a very reasonable tone, uh, how is it free if they're based in London or the UK, they fly the mechanic in to you. That's so cool. Yeah. And what a dream job, you know? Yeah, no kidding. So th- what happens is they fly this tech out and the person comes and expects a car for a couple of days. And then at the end of that, you know, the end of that stay, I guess, the visit, they give you a checklist of things that uh, they think need to be done with the car and things that you may want to have done with the car. So, like, it's kind of like here's here's what needs to be done. Here's a, a wish list maybe. Right. So just for the sake of argument, this could be something like um, you have to have the oil changed. Yeah. But it would also – we would recommend that you get the tires changed as well. Mm-hmm. But – the oil is the number one priority. Sure. Something okay. like that. Yeah, I get it. All right. So you have these options. So you have the options, right? You have the option yeah. to do any of this stuff if you want or none of it, I guess, if you if you choose to go that way. <laughs> but here's the thing. You can either fly it back to the factory or have it done, um, you know, in the United States at one of the two service centers, as we mentioned, mm-hmm. the East Coast or the West Coast. Bruce, at this point, he's realizing when, you know, the tech is out there and inspecting the car and, you know, going, making the checklist and everything. He finds out that... Um, this car has race car problems. It's not just right. it's not just road car problems. And and here's the reason why. He says when when he bought the car, you know, a lot of people say, say things like, 
you know, all like his his friends, I guess, that have Ferraris or Lamborghinis sure. or whatever, and they say, oh, it's really, you know, it's a it's a car that's made for the track, but it's a road going race car. You know, that a lot of people say that kind of thing. Right, like, it's a road car you can take to the racetrack without any significant alterations. Yeah, but a lot of people kind of twist that around. They say it's really a race car, but I drive it on the street. Right. But but that's not really true. But in the case of this McLaren, it's true. Mm-hmm. The the up the opposite is true of the other cars, you know, the the supercar exotics, you know, that uh, that we hear about from Ferrari, Lamborghini, where, you know, most of them, not all of them, but most of them are the case where it's a great road going car, you know, that they made as a road going car. It's made yeah. to be street legal, but you can also take it to the track, as you said. Yeah, exactly. His his problem is the opposite. It's mm-hmm. like they've tried to make this race car into a street car, and that's the problem. Which might sound like a little difference, but it's. Huge, And one of the reasons it's so huge is because of the maintenance. So like on your on your daily driver, whether that's a Lamborghini or, a, you know, a Corolla um, you or a Monte Carlo, big oh, fan yeah. of those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that things will wear out. Consumables wear out. Sure. Right? Brake pads. pads. Yeah. Uh, yeah, oh, that's, yeah. That's the number one. Jinx, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, Jinx owe me a Coke. Okay. All right. Uh, well, like the, you know, uh, please send any uh, any complaints you have about me to my complaint department, Jonathan Strickland <laughs> at HowStuffWorks dot com. Uh, but uh, but the, the very important difference here, and a lot of race fans will know this, is that in a race car, components don't just wear out; they can also time out. Oh yeah, time out. So this is a big issue, right? This yeah. becomes a big issue for Bruce because. He really, I don't think he really knew that ahead of time. These timed out items, which mean that, you know, like, uh, for instance, okay, he gives the, the example of the fuel cell. He says the fuel cell has a lifespan of five years, whether you, you use it for one day, an hour, or don't even use it at all. In five years time, McLaren, the McLaren factory makes you replace the fuel cell in these vehicles. And the cost, well, you know what, let's not talk about the cost yet. Well, okay, so, you want to add that but, up? But yeah, so, okay. so the same goes with the fire extinguisher. The fire extinguisher times out. Tires time out. The same goes with the clutch. The clutch is good for two to 3,000 miles is what he says. But they claim that after three years, you need a new clutch. Now, listen, here's, here's one thing to begin with. Yeah. Two to 3,000 miles that's in a clutch, crazy. That's, that's pretty awful. Yeah. That's not good at all. No, that's terrible. It's not. But he's saying that, you know, that it's either... It's either, according to the factory, it's either good for two to three thousand miles or three years. And again, the same thing holds true. Whether you use it a day, yeah. an hour, or don't use it at all, you've got to replace it. As soon as that stuff is installed, the clock starts ticking. So it's a, it's a, he says what it, what it is really is it's, it's a timed out type of car, I guess, is what mm-hmm. he's saying. And this race car timing or timing out is what really starts to drive up the price. And he says, and when, he, when he sat down and he figured out what this car would cost him, if he didn't drive it a single day, if he just parked it in his garage, it was an astounding number, wasn't it? Yes, and we'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. 
Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. And Ben, we kind of left on a cliffhanger. Yeah, we did. How much would this car have cost Bruce had he just parked it in the garage, never driven a day, you know, just just left it there? Sure. Per year, how much would that have cost him? $50,000, not driving at all. No, that's just adding on all the stuff. And that's just kind of an average every year that he would pay uh, based on all these timed out items that we've talked about. Fifty grand. To never drive your car. How about that? Plus, you know, you got that $1.2 million up front that you're paying for the thing. So now he gets, now he gets in his, uh, I don't know. It seems to me almost like a, sometimes the phrase we throw around is a, a Larry David situation. <laughs> yeah. So he's paid $1.2 million for this McLaren, as you said, Scott. And he thinks to himself, uh, I've maybe got a good, what, couple of years. Yeah. Before I, this becomes a serious, Loss. Yeah, so he starts, he's going to start losing money on this, on this proposition right now. What a terrible thing. I mean, you got a beautiful, exotic car that you want to drive all around town and show off, right? And arguably a work of art. And just enjoy. I mean, just to drive it. I mean, you, you must really enjoy driving that vehicle. I mean, it's something unique. Not a lot of people get to do that ever in their lifetime. And he did mainly and almost solely to pick his son up from school. Yeah, he used it as a carpool car. <laughs> so he's picking up his kid in, you know, in the carpool at the, with this thing. And he says, you know, he's not one to really like take his car out to the racetracks or anything. He's trying to think of like what he can do with this thing. So he wants to drive it, but he, he doesn't have much more to do with it than to pick up the kid at school. So he's using that crazy expensive car to do yeah. it. He'd be the most popular kid in the carpool. Oh, of course. sure. Now, but, now uh, there, there is one thing we should point out, Scott. We yeah. can't, we can't gloss over this because I know uh, a lot of us are sitting out here and just heard you say he doesn't want to take it to a racetrack. And yeah. a lot of people probably just threw up our hands and said, what? You have this car and you're not taking it to a racetrack. But he um, 
He has a solid reason. He has a he has a logic behind it. Yeah, there is logic, and he says that he's not the per- kind of person that um you know really wants to see them damaged or or wrecked in any way. He wants to enjoy them. He likes to drive his cars in, a, in a, I guess in a sane manner, and uh, and he says he doesn't really even trust himself. He doesn't have enough faith in himself to tear around a track in a car that you know he's not that familiar with in a racetrack situation. He's he's familiar with. You know, driving an exotic on the roads. Sure. There's, you know, there's different things you have to do with exotics on the highway as well. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and around town, you know, you've got all the concerns of, uh, you know, lo- you know, high curbs and, uh, and speed bumps, things like that, that you have mm-hmm. to deal with, especially here in Atlanta. Lots of speed bumps. Yeah. And um, those, uh, metal plates that just appear overnight. Yeah. There's all kinds of things. I mean, just road debris and all kinds of things. You yeah. know, he, so he's comfortable driving them on the street, but he's not comfortable driving his own cars on the racetrack. And I, I respect that. I mean, if he doesn't want to damage or destroy his mm-hmm. own vehicle, you know, that's fine. So for him, it's a, um, it's a question of safety and caution. Now, there's something I, was curious about folks and I looked into it, but I, I couldn't find anything solid yet. Uh, it's possible, right, for him to get, if, if you really wanted to, it's possible for him to get some, uh, training, right? Oh, sure. McLaren specific. Oh, yeah. Uh, but at this point, we don't know if, I don't know at least if he decided to do that, but, uh, I do want to acknowledge that is a possibility. It se- yeah, it seems like he didn't look into it because we don't really hear about it in this in this right. story. This is a great story, by the way. This is it's uh, interesting, really, and to hear it from him is is also interesting. I so, mean, do yeah. both. Listen to the interview too, because he he's he's a funny guy too. The way he tells the story is great. Yeah. So so he's got his he's got his like curb your enthusiasm moment. This amazing, astonishing vehicle that has essentially become. The world's coolest carpool yeah. car. That's like a grocery getter, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, McLaren grocery getter. And, uh, and so he owns it for about four months. He's four months into owning it and he's already done the math, which I thought was impressive where, you know, you got to feel that clock ticking. Yeah. If you think you got two years. So he has that. He takes McLaren up on that, uh, free inspection. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. servicing and he gets the list that Scott and I mentioned earlier. Okay. Yeah, the list. This is uh this is pretty shocking. So he gets the list back, you know, with all the values of what needs to be done in the car, and it's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of work that they say it needs. Now this is after the car remember we bought the car and uh you know the car was serviced four months prior to him buying it. In the factory. In the factory. It was sent back to the factory and it was so, so again, four months after the service, it needs another quarter of a million dollars in work at this point. Uh, uh, and and there's really nothing wrong with the car i mean he hasn't he hasn't damaged it he hasn't crashed it he hasn't you know excessively driven it yeah. he hasn't driven it hard on a racetrack he hasn't done anything he's babied this car i mean we we've heard the tale mm-hmm. uh, a carpool car yeah and he says he doesn't want to ride it and drive it on racetracks mm-hmm. so he's not like just tearing it up right this is a, this is a quarter of a million dollar bill four months later let's get into it okay All right. so Oh, this is terrible. how could it be a quarter of million dollars? <laughs> Let's start with the tires. McLaren tells Bruce they need to be replaced. Can I, can I stop you before yeah, you get into this? Do. This will be one of the most frustrating things you've ever heard, I think, about auto maintenance. But but McLaren has contacted him. So yeah. go ahead. And we're going to uh, you know what? We're going to take a little bit of inspiration from Billy Mays because this is definitely a but wait, there's more. Oh, for sure. Uh, all right. So they say the tires need to be replaced. And. He says, what? Uh, because the tires are three years old, but they don't have any missing tread. They're not worn down. You so know? it's timed out issue. Yeah, because but- they, you know, they still passed the penny test. Uh, he says <laughs> there were only about 100 kilometers driven on it. 
in those three years. So they're essentially brand new tires. Yeah. I mean, brand new tires, but they've timed out because they're three years old. Right. McLaren's saying you got to do it. Racetrack maintenance. Yep. And so uh, he is, as we said, he's already familiar with the hidden cost of owning exotic or high-performance cars. And so he drops this line that just baffled me, Scott, where he said, I'm used to paying a thousand dollars a tire, maybe on my Ferraris and Lamborghinis. <laughs> Excuse me, I just choked on my water. I know. Oh, I mean, I want to have that problem. Thousand dollars a tire, uh, and he's talking about you know his Lambos and his Ferraris, things like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he gets the he gets the thing, and he looks at he looks at the the uh, the line item for tires. It's fifty thousand dollars. But wait, there's more. Yeah, it wasn't fifty thousand dollars for the tires. It's $50,000 from the time you're going to remove the old tires and then set up the new tires. Yeah, because it's a race car, not a street car. So, you know, on a street car, you can just balance the tires, you know, on, a, on the, uh, the t- tire balancing machine. Sure. Put them on the car and everything's fine, right? That's not, that's not an issue. That's how they've done it for a long, long time. It's different on a race car. When you're putting tires on a race car, the only way you can balance tires in that situation are you have to balance them when they're on the car on a racetrack. Yeah, you have to take it around the track uh, because <laughs> you're not just balancing the tires. You're also adjusting the suspension system to the tires, uh, and every tire is different. So the suspension of the car has to accommodate the new tire that you're applying to that vehicle. So uh, it's just it becomes crazy from this point on. So, again, $50,000 is not the price of, of tires for the car. They're not they're not 12500 each. Right. The tires are, are more reasonably priced than that oh, the, yeah. for the rubber the, itself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But where it gets crazy is is what has to happen after that. Now, we said that it has to be – you know, adjust, set up and adjusted on a track. So here's the thing. They, they start talking to him in this, what he calls a lengthy situation on the phone. And he said, cause I'm sure he was maybe arguing back a bit about this. And I would think you would at this Wouldn't point. Wouldn't you? I, I would, yes. Uh, but he, they say, you gotta really, you gotta figure all this out because, uh, 50, for $50,000, here, here's the deal. It was around $7,000 for the tires themselves. So yeah. the, they're, they are expensive. They're very expensive. But wait, there's more. Yeah. There were a couple of thousand dollars to rent a racetrack in North Carolina that was near the BMW factory. But wait, there's more. Yeah. It's a couple thousand dollars to send the car up there and then bring it back in a closed trailer. So transportation. Oh, we're going to keep doing this, All right. but wait, there's more. That's yeah, $1,000 for the driver, so that he can't even drive it himself. It's somebody else that's got to drive it. And then? Yeah, there's more. Yeah. Uh, it was $1,000 for the ambulance that had to be at the racetrack as well. As everybody, you know, if anybody's rented a facility like that, right. you know you have to have an ambulance on scene. And that's, and of course, if there's an ambulance, there has to be insurance. Yeah, $5,000 of liability insurance with his insurance company to even send it up there. And it was a couple of thousand dollars of, of liability insurance to pay BMW for just using the racetrack. So that's seven grand in insurance alone. Yeah. Oh, God. But that's not it, Ben. There's still more. There were a couple of mechanics that they had to pay to actually set up the car, you know, like on at the track side. So it's yeah. not just the driver, the mechanics, the tires, the, the ambulance, the, the track, yeah. the rental, the yeah. insurance, all that. It's, it's, it's techs on site as well. Um, it's just, it became this enormous proposition, as he said, just to change a set of tires. And he said, at this time, he said, to be honest with you, at this time, this is when it started to turn me off about owning this car. 
Right, because he also starts adding up the other costs that he's already aware of that are looming in the future, right? Yeah, yeah, because of that list. Right, when the fuel cell needs to be replaced, uh, he says they gave him a quote of a hundred and ten grand for the fuel cell. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so that's the equivalent of a of a fuel tank in our car, right? You can uh-huh. imagine, and I don't know what a fuel tank, I guess, in an average sedan would cost to replace. Right, right, right. But I can guarantee you that it's not one hundred ten thousand dollars. And it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it it wasn't just the fuel cell. It was also either shipping this car to BMW's factory in the Carolinas or sending it back over the pond to England. Yep, yep. And he says – now, <laughs> here's the thing. He says, you know, while I'm thinking about this, they're telling me $110,000 for the actual fuel cell. But what does it really cost? Because like the situation with the tires – With the transit – is yeah. there insurance? Who yeah. knows? It, it adds up. So it's $110,000 just for the fuel cell. That's the part. That's the part. That's not the labor. That's, that's, that's not the transport. Yeah. He's wondering, like, what, what kind of number would they give me for this? And he said they wouldn't give him a number until he actually was going to do it. He said, because, you know, as you know, things change. Right. Like shipping rates could change. Uh, <laughs> for instance, you know, shipping a car is not a, uh, it's it's not a, a very inexpensive endeavor. No, I don't think it would be. No, no. So and oh, then he goes on to say, <laughs> it keeps point, adding uh, up. Yeah, it keeps <laughs> adding up because he says, you know, at the same time, uh, the fire extinguisher expired. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it, it timed out, I guess. And he said, the cost for the fire extinguisher, which goes inside the car, yeah, it's just a regular old fire fire extinguisher, eight hundred bucks. And he also says, and this is not a this is not a plug for Walmart. But Bruce points out that he could just literally go buy a fire extinguisher at Walmart for like ten bucks. Yeah, exactly. And he says they want to charge him eight hundred bucks because the fire extinguisher was purpose built to fit in this tiny little hole that they had with this tiny little strap. And he said it would basically basically be attached to the body. And he's thinking, you know, if if, if they're going to charge me eight hundred for a fire extinguisher that you can get for ten dollars. You know, what else are they going to charge me for along the way? Like, this is a $250,000 bill that I'm looking at. Yeah. And I've talked to them about it. Right. And he's wondering, you know, four months down the road, what's the next bill going to look like? Because yeah. the car is just getting older at that I point. I mean, it's always something, apparently. It, well, it is because of that timed out feature. I want to make a note here that I think is is pretty interesting. So initially after hearing all the stuff about the fuel cell and hearing the blow by blow with the tire expenses which mm-hmm. he does break down by line item uh i i fell victim to uh something that a lot of sales folks use uh it's a psychological thing called anchoring mm-hmm. and it happens on everything from um menus to buying a car to buying a house because if we had just been hanging out and out of the blue, right? If you were Bruce, now the blue, I told you, oh, you need a new fire extinguisher. It's 800 bucks. You probably would have been like, what the, what is wrong with you? Where's the camera? What's up with this guy? Yeah. But after hearing $50,000, after hearing $110,000, hearing 800 is sort of like, oh, well, yeah, I guess while well, I'm already here. <laughs> just throw that in. Right. Because it seems smaller just yeah. because of the prices that came before. So now hopefully I have a, Helped everybody be aware of how menus are set up the next time you go to a restaurant. Oh, that's a good tip, Ben. Anchoring, that's what they call that? 
I think so. Okay. I think so. Um, and so if you can I, get the cowboy ribeye for forty six ninety nine. Uh huh. Uh, but you can get the regular ribeye for what? Uh, like thirty bucks. Just thir- yeah. just thirty five dollars. Right. 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 Just thirty. And now you're like, well, I am a clever person. Uh, <laughs> just so say fifteen bucks. I believe it's called anchoring. Somebody write in and let me know. Uh, that phenomenon or that technique and strategy is is real. Um, and I believe it's called anchoring. But that sounds right. That's that's good. It's clever. So there is a saving grace here, though. Hopefully, because this is. Uh, as as you said, um, there's a very important detail about the McLaren that really differentiated it to Bruce and sort of sold him on it, and that is the engine. Yeah, the engine. As we said before, you know, this is a BMW engine, and he, he was thinking to himself, you know, how expensive could it be to maintain a BMW engine? Really, it's kind of a uh, a tested, you know, bulletproof engine, as he said. You know, it's it's purpose built. Uh, well, he said it's not a purpose built for racing engine. It was more of an off the shelf engine for BMW, but yeah. put into a purpose built race car that was created by McLaren. So he's thinking, you know, I'll get a kind of a break on the engine. Uh, you know, that it should be pretty solid, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, the thing is that, um, after he, he said, well, that was not really the saving grace. And as, as a matter of fact, you know, the engine required just about as much yeah. maintenance and care and timed out issues as, or timed out pieces, I guess, or re- replacements as the rest of the car did. So he realized that, you know, um, maybe the, after about a year, this wasn't the car for him. After all this expense and all this, this trial and error and, and, you know, going through the getting a bill in the mail for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and talking with techs and whoa, 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 it was a recommendation. Okay, recommendation, <laughs> but 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 finally he says, you know, he doesn't want to get to the point where he's upside down in the car. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't want to owe more than, uh, you know, owe more than it's worth. So at the time, you got and I don't know what year he sold this or what year he had this. I don't think it was ever mentioned, but mm-hmm. he said that um, at the point he said it made sense to sell the vehicle, and that's exactly what he did because it wasn't appreciating you know at this level of ownership it's almost it's an investment yeah and like he said you know he's getting these bills and he's he's figuring out the timed out costs and you know the monthly costs even if he doesn't drive it and it just wasn't adding up he was going to be losing money but then after he had sold it oh here we go of course you know he had buyer's remorse when he bought it i guess yeah at at that point and you can't blame him when he sold it he had seller's remorse because regrettably as he said the uh, the value of that car continued to climb and climb and climb and climb and climb because now those are 15 plus million dollar cars and had he held on to it had he just put up with the maintenance that we just described you know in detail with you know the, the 110,000 the, the you know $50,000 tires etc had he just put up with that, it would have been a, a tremendous investment in the end, it turns out. But he had no, you know, he had no idea womp that the market womp. was going to do that. Right. I mean, who would know that that's a $15 million plus car now? You know, what was it? Five, 10 years ago. Yeah. You can't, you can't blame him. No. Uh, and also, also one of the questions I had on this was, uh, if you own the car, you own it outright. So. Legally, if he wanted to, he could have just got the $10 fire extinguisher, right? I guess. You know, I, I was wondering if that somehow voids some the, the like rest voids of it. a warranty yeah, or Yeah, or maybe it becomes like a non-certified McLaren at some point or something like that. Right, which would uh, affect the resale value. Yeah. I, I mean, it has to be something like that. I mean, why else would you put up with you know, right. an $800 fire extinguisher when you can, you can just get the $10 version? And on the other side, before we go too much further, on the other side – it is fair to say that 
there's a reason um, these high-end manufacturers have these sorts of uh, rigid schedules and mm-hmm. rules, and it's it's not it's not just like bilk money out of people. It's uh, to maintain the cars at peak performance so that not just the owner of the vehicle, but everyone who encounters that vehicle will still be able to say, wow, what a great car. It's brand image. Right. So you're not going to see one that has, you know, flat black paint on it and, uh, you know, a pair of rims that you bought at Pep Boys. Right. And some Bondo. Yeah. Can you imagine? You're not going to find that. (laughs) And, and, you know, that's the thing. Like, you you never know. You you never say never. But that may have happened. That may have happened had they not had a program like this for these cars. And I know that was an extreme example. But sure. But you may find some that have, you know, questionable add-ons or, you know, something that, you know, an unusual paint scheme that, uh, McLaren doesn't approve of necessarily mm-hmm. or didn't approve of from the factory. Um, but you're right. It's all about brand image, I think. And that, um, anybody that encounters a car will always encounter the best possible version of that car at all times based on this plan that they've put together. And I think that's what this all comes down to. And I feel like I need to point it out. Um, I haven't called them yet, but I'm pretty sure that I could call, uh, I could call Chevy. And tell them what uh, any crazy thing I wanted to do to my Monte Carlo, mm-hmm. and they'd be fine with it. I, I think they'd be all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think they would say uh, no, no, no. We gotta, we gotta ship that back to the factory for us to do. Oh that. God, please take it. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that factory is even around. I don't know where the McLaren or the Monte Carlo is made. But anyways, that I, I found that to be just an extremely eye-opening interview even for some you know a couple of us you know yeah, yeah, yeah. the two of us that we're kind of jaded i guess we hear high numbers for exotics all the time sure. you know prices and and we hear about you know, these un- unique or unusual uh hoops i guess that exotic car owners have to jump through in order to get things done sometimes but even so this one was surprising to me and and i do encourage you to go to youtube and watch this video again it's from uh, VinWiki. Vin, yeah, VinWiki.com, or you can go to, you know, YouTube and search VinWiki and, and find this McLaren maintenance uh, story. Oh, and did you, uh, did you happen to, uh, clock this? They're based in Atlanta. Yes, they are. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, yeah, there's a, um, well, the co-founder is one of the guys that we've talked about uh, doing the Cannonball Run. Right, right. Yeah, Ed Bullion, I think is his uh-huh. name. Yeah, yeah. And he makes an appearance in a couple of videos as well. Yeah. Uh, he's one of the co-founders of VinWiki. So uh, you might want to check out a few of their videos there and see if uh, there's something that you like. I, I, a lot of them drew me in. I ended up watching half a dozen of these, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in a day. And they're they're pretty short. I, I think the one we just talked about was about eight minutes long. Yeah. But they'll keep you, um, you know, excited about it and and uh focused on it for the full eight minutes i promise plus again that guy is a good storyteller yeah and he is funny i think you mentioned that (laughs) uh so this uh scott this examination uh inspired me to ask a question Mm -hmm. uh for for all you folks listening out there what was your biggest hassle car Oh yeah, I think everybody's everybody's had had a, a limit or two at some point. Oh, yeah, know? like maybe a car that you've owned for a couple of years, and then suddenly just everything started falling apart, mm-hmm. on it. and mm-hmm. and it required you know a special uh, you know a German mechanic to take care of it in right. some some cases or and, something like that. Yeah, and some cars are legendary just for like Yugos or Pintos or something, and and that's fine too. But also we got to point out, man. Sometimes you just can't predict it. You Ooh, know what I mean? No, you no. might just have like a, a Volkswagen that gets the spirit of some gremlin in it. You know what? I, now that you said Volkswagen, <laughs> uh, not just my car, which is having a few issues right now. I'll talk about those soon. Um, but there was an interesting article about the VW Phaeton. 
Uh, mm. the, the, uh, the kind of luxury. Yeah, yeah. Not really a supercar, but a, a luxury, um, halo car, I guess, for VW for a while. And, uh, the difficulties that an owner had with, uh, the faith. Anyways, we'll talk about that maybe in a future podcast yeah. because, uh, fascinating stuff goes on with that one too. And you can write to us with stories of your hassle car directly at the email address we'll give you, uh, at the end of the show. It reminds me, Scott, speaking of listener mail, we have a very special one for everyone that we teased at the beginning of today's episode and we'll get to it after a word from our sponsor. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. This is a, uh, is a as we said, a very special uh, listener mail segment because we have a very well thought out response uh, to our episode on car title loans, which um, according to, you know, a lot of the feedback we've received from you, ladies and gentlemen, uh, was eye opening in some cases disturbing, but definitely controversial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Now, the person that contacted us, his name is uh, Fred Winchar. 
And Fred, I'm going to read his, I'm just reading his whole name because we read his name in the first episode. Right. Uh, yeah. Fred, we quoted Fred. Yeah. Fred was the guy that was in the, uh, in the bank rate article. And I think we described him as, uh, the person that was, I think we said trying to defend the practice or something like that, right? Yeah. Because whenever we look at a topic like this, we do our best to present, uh, all sides of the argument, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and Fred, you know, he, he, Presented an opposing viewpoint in this article, yeah. and we did read that, and we read through you know his comments here. Uh, however, after the episode aired, uh, we got a note from Fred directly. Fred wrote us and said uh, he well, actually it's a long email, but he again kind of well, you know what? Let's just read through some of this, and, and maybe that's the best way to do it. But it's a well thought out email, and I wanted to make sure we spent some time with it. And, yeah, and he, yeah. Makes, he makes some great points, really, and some things he mentioned some things that we didn't bring up in the podcast. And I think it's always, uh, you know, it's always relevant to bring the other side of the story in as well. So uh, this is Fred doing that. So mm-hmm. he writes in and says, hi, guys. First, I want to thank you for coverage of the car title loans and attempting to give a balanced look at the financial product. I also wanted to thank you for the shout out the podcast, which is when we write him in the uh, in the bank right, rate. Right. Oh, he says, I wish I was more of a, a better spokesperson for what I do. So I apologize if I don't have the savvy that you guys have when you present your topics. Well, there's no need to say that, Fred. Uh, I mean, sheesh. yeah, really. I mean, this, this email is well written out and we'll, we'll read through some of yeah, it. I yeah, think he yeah. does have the, uh, the savvy to describe his business and make some great points. Yeah, he really does. And oh, you know what? Let's, let's tell them first. Fred is the president of a place called Tradition Media Group who does business as, uh, Max Cash Title Loans. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure we got that out there. So, right. Uh, we talked about Max Cash Title Loans last Last time, and he's the president of that. Um, so he says, um, "There's a few points that I heard that I think were not intentionally misleading, but misleading nonetheless." And one of the things you guys did was basically say that car title loan advocates put a spin on the product to make it look not so bad. But what you failed to understand is why. Because after listening to you both, it was very clear that you're not trying to say that a person should never get a car title loan, mm-hmm. which he'll address shortly. Uh, but you tried in a way to make people who provide this service as ruthless and as heartless by chance, make them sound ruthless and heartless by charging so much in the interest rate. Well, I mean, I don't think we meant to make them all sound ruthless and heartless. I think some are. Don't you agree? Uh, and I think Fred would agree. I think, yeah, Fred does agree in this, in this article. And here's, here's one thing that I want to just point out really early in this. Sure, we're going to, sure. we're going to read more of this as, and talk through some points, but this is the same thing that we deal with when we talk about you know, good mechanics versus bad mechanics and, and good sale, car salespeople versus bad car salespeople, you know, the shifty ones. Uh-huh. Uh, this is the exact same thing. There's, there's a few bad apples out there and those are the ones that always get the press. Those are the ones that make, you know, the, uh, the headlines. Squeaky wheels and grease, man. Yeah. But as Fred is going to point out later, that's not the majority of the people that are out there now. So yeah, let's, uh, let's take a look at this part where he mentions a few questions. Says if you rent an apartment and you don't pay the rent and you avoid the landlord, what will happen? Do you just get to stay in the apartment and it just the the owners just live with the fact they would be ruthless to kick you out? Great question. How about a house mortgage which you stop paying? You get evicted, you get foreclosed. Was it the bank's fault? Should they be considered dirty lenders or landlords considered horrible people? Um so they built the home or put their money on it with the trust you would pay. Uh, why are they not considered bad? What about renting a car? What if you rented it and never returned it? Are you entitled to keep it? Do you think the company will attempt to get it repoed? And he says, you know, if you're, if we're assuming that those comparisons are unfair because those people don't target low income customers, we'd be incorrect. I'm paraphrasing here. Yeah. Car rental companies let you rent a car with a cash deposit. Landlords will, of course, rent you a low income place. Um, and then he has something here that I think is really interesting about the math, and I'm going to read that verbatim. Okay. But 
before you do that, yes. I want to point out that in our original car title loans story, yeah. you're talking about places that were charging people 300% interest. Right. And that's not the case in his example here because he's talking about the interest rate that his firm charges. Right. Or that most of them, I guess we should say most of them are moving toward mm-hmm. as we, we said that. We said a lot of states are trying to push for legislation to limit the amount of uh, percentage rate, annual percentage rate that they're allowed to charge for these. They can't, they can't charge these 300% rates anymore. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not legally allowed to. They're, they're going more towards what Fred does now. Uh, so, yeah. so here's the example. All right. So Fred says maybe you're thinking they do not gouge on the interest rate. Let's do the math. You rent a $25,000 car for $40 a day. Just an example, but I think you can see I'm being reasonable on the amounts. I agree. Yeah. Uh, 40 a day is 14,600 a year. That would equal an interest rate of 36.8%. How strange. That's the same percent you can get on a title loan for right now in many states and many companies because both have no prepayment penalties and you're only charged the rate while you're borrowing the car or cash. Then why aren't all car rental companies considered predatory? Uh, But he he does say many states and many companies, not not all. Not every state, not every company. That's the point, I guess, is that it's not all. There's still some crooks out there. Mm -hmm. And that's the people that we were trying to warn you against before, the ones that open up up overnight and, you know, the little, uh, the little tiny, you know, uh, closet size, uh, storefronts and, and end up taking your title away. That's the, that's the ones we were warning you about. Uh, I was trying to be a little more fair and balanced about it. I, I think there's still a lot of, um, I think there's still a lot of those companies out there, like the ones that I was describing in the first episode where they, they are price gouging. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that the move towards, uh, you know, more of the, uh, the business type or business, uh, business model that Fred has, uh, for his title loan company, I, I think that's probably that's probably the push now. That's what that's where everybody's going now. Yeah, which is good news. And so he has an example from uh, earlier in his life. He says, "So why the spin decent and larger car title loan companies have to take? Because car title loan lenders of over a decade ago started this with crazy high interest rates." Because they could. Ah, because they could. So they did. They got away with it because they could. Um, he says when he got in the industry years ago, he worked as a counter agent and, uh, you know, the little mom and pop operation, mm-hmm. right? And he said he saw the beautiful car that the owners drove and, or cars, I should say, that the owners drove. And it took him a while to realize that those cars weren't just the cars that they had purchased with, you know, the money from the business. These are cars that they had repoed from customers and they did it in kind of a, a backhanded way. Um, you know, when, when he saw someone lose their car, he would notice that the owners would tack on a bunch of fees that were basically any number they wanted. And then they gave the customer back what was left over, as we described, right. you know, from the sale. Sure. But that was almost nothing. It was always almost nothing. So the owners were really coming out, you know, on the other end in a, in a good, uh, in a good way. And he says he's extremely proud to say that that was, you know, this, this little time operation that, that did go out of business. So he's happy that they were out of business because they were, an example of, you know, the bad seeds. Right. And uh, then he also says uh, that most of those businesses are gone. The bad ones, the yeah. greedy ones, the, yeah. uh, the ones that, you know, uh, were the initial starters of the whole title loan thing. And he said not all companies were like this. Some evolved into decent firms, but uh, it took some government slaps and some fees to get them to behave. Yeah, that's right. And he said the bigger companies, of course, had something to lose and the smaller ones just decided to close up their doors. You know, the, um, the, the industry had begun to change. And I didn't know there was a, like a, a title 
change or uh, title. I mean, T I D A L title change <laughs> oh, in the yeah. industry. You know, like a like a like a washing over of of right. the old to the new. A sea change. Um, yeah, sea change. That's a better way to say it. They're confused title and title. <laughs> a car title loan. <laughs> All right. Well, anyways, it worked, I guess. So, um, but he says, you know, these, these car title loan brokers popped up and, and a lot, you know, he was one of them. Mm-hmm. And he's saying that it's kind of a game changer because now there's competition. You know, when everybody competes, the, the people that use the service win because, you know, they're in kind of a price war. And that's exactly what happened. People competing for lower percentage rates, even though they still seem high. I mean, I'll tell you, 36.8 or 38.6 or whatever that percentage rate that was that we just read, uh, 36.8, uh, that he, he mentioned, that's still pretty high. That's a high percentage rate if you're buying a car or anything, really. I mean, or, or have a credit card or whatever. That's really high, but it's not 300%. So it's a move in the right direction, I guess. Um, but again, the customers had an option of who they wanted to choose and, you know, they had, you know, a broad spectrum of rates and different programs. And, you know, it was for, for, for people that own the business, he said, I, th- I think he said this is a, like an emotionally stressful time for them. And he wants to point out that, you know, there's a big need for this financial product. And, but he says, you know, to be clear that at one point, all you needed was a clear car title. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, not a clear car title, just a car title. Right. It didn't have to be clear. And the lender would pay off the old debt and incorporate that into the loan, which is still a practice for most companies. But he said, you had to prove the ability to repay this. And, and what that meant is that you needed to show that your current income would handle the loan amount. And he said, it's something relatively new, but it's highly enforced in the industry now. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's uh, there's another part that you brought up, which uh, which pertains to a statistic that we pulled in our episode, where he says um, eighty to ninety percent of the people who get those loans are are paid off and actually return later to get another. Because we, toward the ends of of our episode, uh, looked at a couple of polls about people who. Uh, had participated in or were currently participating in a car title loan. That's right. And remember when you read those numbers and I said, I thought it would have been the exact opposite, a reverse, a reverse percentage of what you just read me, because Mm -hmm. it seemed like everything that we'd read up to that point about them, you know, had been all about price gouging, all about, um, you know, the, the underhanded tactics that some of the bad ones had pulled, you know, the greedy ones. Uh, but he is saying that, you know, 80 to 90% come back for another one. They pay them off successfully. They have repeat customers for paid off loan, you know, for loans that do pay them off. Um, and he was saying that, you know, what happens a lot of times is that you hear all the grumbling, the griping from people that are upset with car title loan companies because he said, and this is, should be no surprise to anybody. The Internet has helped spread the word faster than it ever would have, you know, just around town, I guess. Sure, yeah. He's saying that, you know, it probably goes back to um, – this is my own words here. This probably goes back to, you know, a, a dissatisfied customer is more likely to complain about that in print or to somebody than a satisfied customer, right? Isn't that kind of the, the saying, I yeah, guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you want to – a happy customer never comes back and says how what great service and, and promotes the company. It's always the, the one that's grumbling about bad service. That you read about or hear about, they're they're anxious to get online and spread the word. That's what's happened with car title loans: is that people that you know have, you know, the, the, it's been their fault. They haven't paid back the loan, or you know, they they've um, you know bad situation, or whatever. I mean, I don't know what happened to every individual case, of course, but someone can't pay off the car title loan. They get their car repoed. They're going to spread word that you know this that this car title loan company is the real problem. It's not them for for not. A, up, you know, um, upholding their end of the deal. I see what you're saying. Now, yeah. there, there's a part here that 
I want to quickly read verbatim. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear what you think about this, folks. Is, is this about the five types of people that, that get yeah, loans? Yeah. Okay. He says, uh, so who does take out car title loans? Someone who just had a loved one die and they need money right now for the funeral. Parents who have just gotten notice that their kid's tuition is due and if they don't pay, their son or daughter will have to miss a semester. A spouse who just found out they need either bail money or a lawyer because their partner got arrested. A real estate agent who just sold a house but the escrow is not closed for months so they need cash till that happens. It's the person who just got over a major illness and is just returning to work and needs help till they are back to normal. So it's not the low-income person as you would think because rarely does the low-income person already have a paid-off car worth enough for a car title loan. It's the average American worker. And then this this made me laugh, Fred, if you're listening. He says, uh, you mentioned that people with Teslas do not get title loans, yet we just did one today. <laughs> you mentioned that high-income people do not get these, yet they most certainly do because they know they can pay it off quickly. While you are correct that there are companies out there which compound the problem to this day, there are many that do not. It takes a little work to find the good ones, but they exist. I just do not feel that bashing car title loan companies will go away until publishers stop lumping them in the group of payday loan companies who charge 300 to 500% interest and pawn shops who charge 120% interest and up. Oh, man. All right. Well, that's, those are all good points. Very good points. And and the type of people he's talking about, the five types of people that he just outlined right here, I can see them needing, you know, a couple thousand dollars on the spot, you know, needing it right then. But what I can't see, I, I, I don't understand this still. You you mentioned, I think, the Tesla owner not getting not needing one of these. Right, right, right. right. And then he says, well, we had one today. And so he, he disproved us. But I can't see someone that's considered a high income uh, person uh, wanting to get quick, fast cash like that from a source like this at, you know, 38% or 36% or whatever. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't they go to their bank, which they likely have, sure. you know, investments in or, you know, uh, at least savings checking account, yeah. like secure money. Why wouldn't they go there? Why wouldn't they go to a credit union or something like that where it's a little cheaper? But I, I, I mean, I just don't understand it, but maybe it's just uh, um, availability. Maybe it's something that's convenience. Maybe it's super fast, and they know that they can just pay it off right away without any kind of without having to really pay the full, um, you know, the, the full term because you're allowed to pay it off early, right, and mm-hmm. with no penalties. So, in, in most cases, I don't know if that's the case with this one. I think he said that early on in this note, but um, I don't know. I just don't see. I still don't see the high income person going to a title loan place for a quick loan. Yeah, you know, and we we had heard uh, a lot of email from uh, from folks out there who were responding to the episode, but we hadn't heard anybody write in and tell us about their personal experience mm-hmm. getting a car title loan. Or we haven't heard yet. No, not yet, not yet. Um, but you know, the end of this note. This was actually really nice. Now, after this long note, it's probably five pages printed, right? It's a long, long email. Yeah. yeah. And again, well thought out. Very, uh, very, very good point. Um, at the very end of this, he says, thank you for allowing me to air some counterpoints. I also thank you for not being unfair in your podcast. You have me as a fan. All the best, Fred. <laughs> ends on a very nice note. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't read any of this in a hostile way, um, you know, as, as from him in mm-hmm. a hostile way. I hope it wasn't intended that way. But I do want to point out that we weren't trying to, you know, harm any of the guys like Fred out there, you know, their, their, their industry, their reputation or anything like that. It's more like the, the bad seed thing, you know, the, the, the one bad apple spoils the bunch or is it one bad potato spoils the bushel or whatever it is. Yeah. It, with the same thing with mechanics. We've done this many times with, um, car salesmen and probably, I mean, other groups as well. One bad sequel ruins the franchise. Yeah. I'm looking at you, Revenge of the Nerds 4. <laughs> but anyways, I thought that was a really, 
That's, that's a really yeah. good, uh, really well-written email, and uh, and we appreciate it. And I think that, you know, maybe it'll give our listeners something else to think about, a, 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 an alternate side to car title loans. And, you know, then they can make up their own mind, I guess. We well, never told anybody not to get one. We never told anybody to get one. Well, but, it's something it's but, something to chew on because the one thing that the one thing that I always think is incredibly important in any large financial decision is to do your own research. I uh, I've got a friend who um oh god, he was so much smarter than me when we were in high school. <laughs> and the way he would do it when we both had these terrible jobs is he would like he would look at how much he made an hour. Yeah. And he would say, "Okay, well, I'm going to if I make this much an hour, then I'm going to treat this research like a job." And so let's say for example, he was making 10 bucks an hour or whatever. And so he's like, "All right, it's $20 worth of my time, 2 hours. And mm-hmm. I want to do a minimum of $100 worth of research." Hmm. And so because I think he was translating it to a financial cost, it kept him focused and it kept him responsible. And the sad truth is that, you know, a lot of us and many people have been in this situation one time or another. A lot of us can jump into things impulsively or make emotionally driven decisions without sitting down and doing the math. Like, watch, Scott, I'm going to bring it back around like Bruce Weiner did when he sat down and said, how many years do I have before this is a serious loss? Yeah. You know, because there are um, there's the price tag of something and then there's the real cost over time. And a loan is no different. A loan is a great example of cost over time. Mm-hmm. So what we think uh, and, and stop me if I'm speaking out of turn here, uh, what we think is that the most important thing you can do is have a clear head before you even set foot into a loan, uh, a loan facility or a, uh, a dealership or anything, heck, before you leave your house, if you can, because you probably have the internet, do extensive research, talk to people. There's nothing wrong with, uh, there's nothing wrong with inquiring, uh, from, from somebody. And usually people will want to tell you about their experiences, good or bad. Sure. Yeah. You got to do your homework. We've always said do your homework on this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and it's a great resource that we have available to us now. Um, it seems like, Maybe, maybe that's why these places were able to get away with what they did early on mm-hmm. was because, you know, the word wasn't spreading quite as fast and, and people were being fooled by that 25% monthly uh, percentage rate versus giving the, you know, the 300% APR right. early on. Uh, but, but now people are a little bit more savvy about the things mm-hmm. like that and they, they do investigate things ahead of time and they do talk to other people about their experiences and, and it's a lot easier. You can talk to people around the world about their experiences now. Mm-hmm. And before you were limited to what, maybe your block, your neighborhood, your community. Yeah. Um, it was a, it was a very small pool of people that you could draw from for, uh, for life advice. Yeah. And, and now, you know, unless you had some very wise relatives or something that, you know, passed on a lot of stuff to you. Oh, but, uh, man. but everybody's relatives well, thinks they're a wise person. Well, now you can find a lot of wise people online, too. Yeah. A lot, yeah, a lot yeah. of wise guys. Wise guys. Yeah. A lot a lot of wise wise acres. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you can find two right on this podcast. Maybe three. I don't know. Count, <laughs> count the madman. He's a little wise. Count the madman. I'm liking this madman thing. Um. So thank you very much, Fred, for uh, taking the time to write back to us and the audience. And speaking of audience, we want to hear what you think. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode. 
I personally hope that you have never had to pay $50,000 for a set of tires. But, you know, inflation being what it is, Scott, what if someone's listening like 10, 15 years from now? What if 50 yeah. grand is the new normal? Yeah, they're like 50,000. 50, I mean, what, what do you buy used tires? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that that brings us back. Don't, don't let us forget. Uh, you can check out every episode we've done about car ownership on our website, carstuffshow.com. You can find uh, all sorts of neat stuff that may or may not make it to the air uh, on our Twitter and on our Facebook. We're Car Stuff HSW at both of those. And by far the most important thing, we want to hear about your hassle cars. Write to us. Let us know about the lemon you got stuck with or uh, a close friend or uh, you know what happens to a lot of people is uh, they get when their kids first start driving, yeah. they get them a car that might need a little TLC, but it'll be okay. And the kid just totally does not take care of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And runs it completely dry, uh-huh. um, you know, forgets to change the brake pads so that, you know, the, the rotors are scarred. Oh, maybe uh, that just, noise will go away yeah, yeah, if I just keep driving. That squealing noise. If, yeah, I, right, if I press right. the brake harder, it makes mm-hmm. it stop. <laughs> yeah, like the noise the noise stops right when the car stops and it's amazing it's it's amazing it's, it's you know? funny who yeah. who can who can ever <laughs> and discern who, the mystery who needs a muffler really i mean come on you don't need a muffler on a car maybe you don't want to be muffled yeah <laughs> well anyways there's there's a, there's a lot of great stories out there so we'd yeah. like to hear them and uh hey ben what if what if in the future what, what if there's no cash in the future so what if uh like mm. we, we our, our dollar amounts don't translate like you know 50 years from now someone's listening to this oh yeah and they're like uh well how many ben is that oh yeah because that would be the new currency right ben dare Bucks. to dream yeah yeah maybe yeah, yeah yeah well it's probably got a slot i mean uh, bitcoin's kind of is bitcoin t- taking a hit right now uh bitcoin's taking a little bit of a hit yeah, yeah. so it's, it's a chance for ben bucks to slide in there, yeah or, or, or scott shekels i don't know that's the closest i can come up with. i don't know <laughs> well uh yes also uh if you have your own currency going on uh let us know we're uh we're forward-thinking individuals. Not we might sure. be early adopters. Uh, and let me know if you want some Ben Bucks. The bank is open. You can write to us directly. We are carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com.